What is good, Ambush, and welcome to another episode of the Desert Tiger Podcast, and this week on the DTP, it is Vance Nevada 2, Electric Beefy Boogaloo, with me here, your host on the DTP, my name is Colton G, and as I've sure you guessed this week it is the second round with our guest Vance Nevada I mean you got you guys have already listened to last week's episode featuring Vance so I'm sure we don't have to get into much of an introduction about him we'll talk a little bit about what we're going to get into with this conversation after a few words and of course we'll get into those right now so first off I just want to let you know that the best place where you can go ahead and support the Desert Tiger Podcast is, of course, I love DTP.com. And like I also said last week, unfortunately, our merch provider is definitely closed down right now. Apparently, merchandise is not considered an essential service here in Canada. So we're not going to be getting those hats and toques for a while. But as soon as we get them, they are going to be up inside of the merch store so that you can get your hands on them as soon as you can. This week's episode is also brought to you by the premier streaming app and website for combat sports, including pro wrestling, MMA, and boxing, and that is Fight TV, spelled F-I-T-E dot TV, and you can find them in your app store and on their website, and we're also also brought to you today by Audible, and they are giving you the Ambush One free audio book with a 30-day trial subscription of the Audible service, and you can check them out at audibletrial.com slash desert tiger. All right, you guys. Yes, it is a second helping of beefy goodness as Vance Nevada joins me again. This week, we discuss his work as a wrestling historian and as an author with his 2010 release, Wrestling in the Canadian West. How how did he go about researching and compiling all of the information that it happens to contain? And does does he plan on writing another book about Canadian wrestling history? We also talk about the Cauliflower Alley Club and their annual wrestling conference in Las Vegas. Vance is currently the editor of their newsletter, The Ear, and has been involved with the Cauliflower Alley Club in various forms. He has quite a few stories about them, and he was even booked to be a speaker at this year's conference, which has been postponed to September of 2020. So come get down with Vance Nevada once again for the Electric Beefy Boogaloo 2 as we discuss his work as a historian and as an author, the importance of the Cauliflower Alley Club, two very different people in Western Canadian history, and even a little bit more advice for wrestlers still earning their dues. All right, let's jump into it with Vance Nevada. The Desert Tiger Podcast. All right, once again, we are joined by Vance Nevada. This time around, we're talking about a book that he wrote in 2010. It is the 
I can't remember the exact title of it, but yeah. The History of Wrestling in the Canadian West? Wrestling in the Canadian West. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So, I happened to just recently borrow this book off of a good friend, Nick Slazinski. Sliz- I never know how to pronounce Nick's last name, but sure. of Thrash Wrestling. So, I just happened to be diving through a lot of this book and just... The immense amount of history that you have inside of it and just everything you covered is incredible. But I want to know, how do you go about gathering the history for a region such as Western Canada where maybe necessarily like everyone knows of Stu Hart and everything of that and that's a little more well documented. But how do you go about getting the information for all of the other clubs around Western Canada, especially the smaller ones that only maybe ran for like a year or two. Sure. I think like a lot of the, the big successes of my career, uh, you know, starting the book was actually like a big fluke. Um, what happened was I'd been wrestling for about a year. This is about 1994. And I was uh, watching a playback of one of my early matches on TV. We had television on Shaw Cable in Winnipeg. And one of the commentators uh, said uh, of my match, this guy is shades of, was trained by Ernest Frenchie Rowe, who was a longtime tag team partner of Frenchie Champagne. And they were a great tag team and held many championships. And uh, I'd never heard of Frenchie Champagne before. Hmm. And as a guy who was like a diehard wrestling fan for that point up eight years, peripherally aware of wrestling before that, but you know, a diehard fan, you know, with the cockiness of an 18-year-old, I thought, Frenchie Champagne, I never heard of that guy. And I know everything about wrestling, of course, because mm-hmm. I'm 18, I know everything about everything. Uh, he must not have been a very big deal. I was curious enough that I wanted to find out about Frenchie Champagne, particularly because they had made this reference to my trainer, Ernest Rowe, being a tag team champion somewhere. So I wanted to find a press clipping or a photo of that and actually give back to my trainer as kind of a respect for, hey, thanks for uh, selling me my first pair of boots mm-hmm. and teaching me three moves and opening the door for me to get into wrestling. So that summer, I got into the Winnipeg archives and started going through the Winnipeg Free Press and going through the old issues of the newspaper. And yeah, I found Frenchie Champagne in there. And this is like not internet, like newspapers.com that we've got access to now. This is like reeling through hours and hours of microfilm. And so I would find a clipping and I would write down the results of the match and, uh, you know, the show. And it, it became a whole summer of activity and I found lots on Frenchie Champagne. I never actually did find any evidence that Ernie Rowe wrestled on a show with Frenchie Champagne. That was all fabricated. But Frenchie Champagne was a huge deal in Manitoba. You know, he was kind of like the top headliner on Manitoba Independent Wrestling from 1953 to 74. Hmm. And... You know, he was a multiple-time heavyweight champion, a multiple-time tag team champion. Uh, he became a promoter later on and had like this traveling ring that folded up and pulled behind his truck. Um, and, but in that area, in Winnipeg, he was the headliner of local shows. When the big show would come in from Minneapolis, he would be the referee on that show. So he had credibility with this rub from all the big names. Um, but as I started to dig into it and see Frenchie Champagne, then I saw like the very earliest days of the career of Moose Murawski, who went on internationally to success, and Bulldog Bob Brown, and Roy McClarty, and Albert Olson, and uh, Gordon Nelson, Bill Dromo, George Gordienko, 
And you're like, wait a minute, Winnipeg was such a huge hotbed of wrestling. You know, the, the relationship with Minneapolis, and then guys were getting into the States and into Europe and into Japan. Uh, and it was enough of a hook to get me going. So I was researching Manitoba, started to trade results with guys who were stampede wrestling historians, and they sent me their stuff. And then it just evolved into this, this project where I'd collected results for Western Canada, more than 30,000 events chronicled from 1867 to now. And we said, you know, we need to do something with this because you just can't give a book of results to people and have them understand the significance of that. So let's start to dissect this and actually document what does this mean? Uh, and so we put started putting together wrestling in the Canadian West as a means of illustrating the depth of the history of the, of the, the region. Uh, letting people know that, yeah, the hearts and stampede wrestling were a huge part of it. But there was also Vancouver. And Vancouver had a very storied history with wrestling uh, and produced a lot of stars over the years. And Winnipeg had a big role to play. And so when you, you put that all together, I remember when we were doing the book, uh, it was really important to me to, to really capture the voices of the wrestlers that were involved. And so I had called up Moose Murawski and said, Moose, I would love to interview you for a book and he had seen some of the other books that had been published on stampede wrestling that were really just a celebration of the Hart family mm -hmm. and didn't really talk about anybody else. And he agreed to interview with me, but he said, listen, I'm going to come and, and sit down with you, but the only writer that's any good in Canada is Greg Oliver from Slam Wrestling. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, I'll bring a draft of what I'm working on. You can kind of see you know, how it's going to play out. And if you want to participate, great. If you don't, that's fine too. And he sat down and looked through like an early draft and he goes, wait a minute, you've talked about all of us. All of our names are in here. And I said, that's the goal. Like we want to celebrate the Gil Hayes and the Moose Murawskis and the Dave Rules and the Eric Froelichs and the Roy McClarty's because mm -hmm. uh, they were really the glue. You know, maybe they weren't necessarily the headliners, uh, but they had long careers and were hugely instrumental in what was going on here. In the same way that, you know, a guy like gorgeous Michelle Starr isn't given enough credit for what he has done for the wrestling industry since 1991 when he started promoting, you know, with West Coast Championship Wrestling and then ECCW for the first eight years of ECCW, 10 years of ECCW. Uh, and now with All-Star, like Michelle Starr himself is probably responsible for promoting more than 1,000 shows, uh, but also responsible for the development of uh, Madison, who was NWA World Women's Champion, uh, Sexy Samantha, who has wrestled internationally in Korea and all over Canada, uh, the Singh brothers, Kyle O'Reilly, El Fantasmo, um, you know, the list goes on and on, Nicole Matthews, uh, all got their start because Michelle Starr was there to give them a platform to begin. And I really wanted to pay tribute to those guys and really acknowledge that, you know what, if you think you know Canadian wrestling and you only know Stampede wrestling, you really just know a small piece of the story. And uh, it's been tremendously rewarding to see that book uh, come to fruition and see that even 10 years later, people are still referencing it. Uh, a lot of pressure for a sequel to the book to say, yeah, let's take the book and now update it. What's happened in Western Canada the last 10 years? Mm -hmm. Every now and then I, you know, get, get the itch to maybe start putting that together. And then, uh, it's a, con it's a conflict between, uh, sometimes particularly in the, in the period where I wasn't involved with wrestling, I just kind of low on it. 
And I thought, well, why do I want to write that? I hate all those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or, you know, I'm going to put this book out there, but, you know, they're not really going to promote it on their side. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was really successful in terms of sales because I was also a touring wrestler at the time. So you wrote the book, and now you're actually in the venues with wrestling fans, not at bookstores, mm-hmm. uh, with a book. And sometimes the fun challenges were you'd be in the Cloverdale Arena and someone would come up and say, oh, yeah, you got a book talking about wrestling? My dad was a wrestler. I bet he's not in the book. I said, well, if I can find his name in the book, are you committed to buy it? And they'd be like, yeah. Well, what was your dad's name? Oh, he wrestled under this name. And I flip to that page and say, there's his name right there. <laughs> and you kind of like, you know, surprise. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. No, that's... Uh one thing I was wondering too because I've seen that you also did a little bit of the research into the East Coast history as well so I was wondering if the update maybe would include some of the full of Canada or is the East Coast history compilation sort of going to be left to yeah. someone who's a little more acclimated with that scene I think you know we've certainly talked about it I got a good friend uh, Rob Seeley on the East Coast who's the premier historian for the Maritimes and we've talked about partnering on the next edition of making it a national wrestling history. Uh, I think the biggest challenge with that is, I mean, Quebec has been well covered in the work that Pat LaPrade and Bertrand, mm-hmm. Bertrand Hebert have done. Uh, Ontario is a very interesting scene, you know, altogether. But we want to make sure that if we do it, the information is as complete as possible and it's done right. Uh, and it's a big, big project mm-hmm. uh, when you get into actually interviewing people. So. I wouldn't rule out that there could be, uh, you know, a follow-up down the road of one of those books or do something more on Canadian wrestling history because especially now that I'm back immersed, there's some talent that I would really like to showcase and spotlight and give visibility to, but it's a big job. I can only imagine that compiling and then just how you had it the first time where it was done on like a timeline type basis compiling the information and then oh this actually happened then and then just like moving everything around and yeah and I think it's uh you know the the research has never stopped and mm-hmm. if I was if I knew now well if I knew in 1994 what I know now about how big the project is I probably would have never started <laughs> um, because now the collection of results alone is 3,800 pages oh, wow. of material. It's been it's been really awesome because if someone gets in touch with me and says, hey, I'm looking for research on my grandpa who used to wrestle or whatever, if it is legit, I've got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've also been able to debunk uh, a lot of you know fakers out there. Um, mm-hmm. My favorite one is a guy out of, uh, I think he's in Oregon, uh, who claims that he wrestled in Canada in the 70s as the super tramp. And... Because there has been so little information mm-hmm. on on Canadian wrestling, and you know the focus was all on the hearts, no one could really, you know, debunk that or yeah. you know, myth bust it. Uh, so I was able to, you know, go through some of the things that he had said in interviews, saying, "Yeah, I debuted in Calgary in this month in 1975, and my first match was against this guy." And then to go through the re- actual results and say, first of all, your name shows up nowhere." in the history and all 7,000 plus shows that Stampede ever ran under your real name or under this assumed name or any variation of that. The guy that you said you wrestled in your first match wasn't even in the Stampede territory that year at all. So this is total bullshit. Mm -hmm. Um, 
because that really bothers me. Like there are legitimate veterans out there that don't get the praise that they deserve. And then you got these, you know, boneheads out there saying, oh yeah, I was a stampede wrestler or, mm-hmm. um, who never laced up their boots ever. Uh, and then they always, they always have these creative stories about, well, I don't have any pictures cause I went through a nasty divorce and my wife burned everything. All right. You know, I, my boots, when they got broken, I threw them out. And I don't know if any wrestler with mm-hmm. broken down boots has ever thrown them out because they're such a badge of honor. I threw all my gear out the window. One yeah, day. I just got frustrated with wrestling and I burned it all. You know, myself, the pair of boots that I gave away when I got out of the business, as I was getting ready for my match, uh, first match was CWE, I thought it'd be my only match. I actually ran into the guy that had them and said, listen, I've got this one match coming up. I'd like to get my boots back so I wrestle in my own boots oh wow and he was cool and he said yeah absolutely and then when I got them once I had them in my hand again I realized you know I never ever wanted to give them away and so I called them and I said listen I feel really bad that I've kind of like gave them to you and now I'm not giving them back they mean too much to me uh, but just so that I'm not a jerk let me buy you a new pair of boots huh so I could have just bought myself a new pair. And eventually I did because my, be- my boots were so beat up that I can't actually use them. But uh, I mean, those are the, the boots that I wore traveling coast to coast in Canada. Those mm-hmm. are the boots that I wore when I got to wrestle for the NWA World Championship. They were a part of your story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the, the book process was really, really interesting um, and really rewarding. So now that, that history is out there. Know, documenting so many guys and I think you know the you know in the end there was lots of guys that were really appreciative uh, of the book and I've got lots of photos of people doing the photo endorsement uh, I think I only had two people that were upset uh, one was Jason the Terrible from Stampede Wrestling mm-hmm. uh, because the book features a road story about him that isn't very flattering <laughs> um, and I think the embarrassing thing about that was we were at a book signing and he was a special guest with me at the book signing he'd never seen the book and and uh, we're sitting there side by side and he's flipping through the book trying to find his name in there and then he found this story like and we're like an hour into a three-hour book signing and he's like well this this isn't the way it happened at all (laughs) right and he just sat there and anybody that came up to him and said hey are you in the book he's like yeah but there's an untrue story about me in there and he was just sour for the rest of the afternoon, and that really sucked. Oh, wow. Uh, and then the other guy was a promoter out of Winnipeg named Mike Davidson, mm-hmm. uh, who had done some stuff in the early 2000s. Uh, he had probably the greatest success of anyone in wrestling at finding these money marks uh, to fund his grandiose ideas. But, you know, it's got really kind of a... I think if there is an update, some of it will sort of talk about some of the shady things that had happened some of it is captured in the book which is why he's upset with me and he had actually put out a bounty on my head oh and he had told wrestlers uh anyone who gives vance nevada a bloody nose uh and sends me proof of that is booked on my next show Hmm. in winnipeg uh for top pay and uh you know me and my colleagues always had a good laugh about that principal pound who used to wrestle out of regina when this first happened, he came into the locker room one night and slammed his bag down next to me in the locker room. And he says, I'm here to collect the bounty. <laughs> and we had a good chuckle about just the ridiculousness of that. But, you know, Mike's first uh, 
first uh, money mark that he found was up for fraud charges for some kind of a telemarketing scam. Uh, and he ended up mysteriously dead. Uh, it was ruled a suicide out of a fourth-story hotel room window uh, in downtown Winnipeg. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that seems legit. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and, you know another another guy that he was involved with uh, ended up getting busted on major fraud charges for some kind of a prepaid uh, student card kind of scam. He's currently serving time in prison. And so you know you just sort of talk about. And it wasn't that we didn't give people an opportunity to tell their story. I reached out to every promoter, regardless of any political stripe, and Mm -hmm. said, tell me from your perspective. And that's how the book was written. And in Mike's case, you know, I approached him a couple of times. He said, yeah, yeah, I'll get you some stuff. I'll get you some stuff. And then eventually I'm like, you know what? We're getting to press time. You haven't sent me anything. So now I've interviewed the wrestlers that have worked with you. And, you know, I guess the story will be told based on their accounts of working with you. And he had sent me back an email saying, well, I look forward to reading about all my failures. But then when it actually came out and people had said the things that they had said about mm-hmm. the experience and and then you reference actual court records and rulings and things like that, uh, he wasn't really happy about it. And, uh, you know, so we haven't really spoken since and my life isn't that much poorer for it. I mean, you know, every now and then he'll, uh, he'll take a pot shot at me indirectly or whatever and you know, do your thing, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. I mean, if that's what he wants to do and if he wants to continue to allow that to affect him, well, that's, those were his decisions. So, yeah. So, you know, I, person, personally, I don't have any ill will towards the guy. Um, you know, I wish him the greatest success in everything that he does. You know, I hope that, uh, whatever he's into, he finds happiness in doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, one of the things that is always interesting with independent wrestling is that people will do things for the wrong reasons. You know, they've decided that they're going to promote uh, because they're upset about the way that they were being used in another company or they think that other promoter isn't doing it right or they've got mm-hmm. a better idea to make money. But if you're doing wrestling of a general, general passion for wrestling and you really see that with companies like Thrash, they're kind of like the underdogs of BC mm-hmm. wrestling, but they just are so passionate about, about wrestling. <laughs> they, you know, and you, you just can't help but love it. Mm-hmm. You know, and you see the characters that they've got in the locker room, and there's some really great talent there. Now, most you know. of the people there are just want to learn, and like any chance to learn, they just soak it up, which is something that I love about being inside of that locker room. Yeah, so. You know, if I was to do a sequel to the book, I think it, you know it would be because of companies like Thrash Wrestling, where the book kind of left off as they were getting started. And now let's talk about this ten-year journey of a company that was maybe initially dismissed as being a bunch of backyarders, mm-hmm. and you know the longevity and the success that they've been able to have, and the talent they've been able to produce. Uh, because there's there's guys there like like Jade is fantastic Camaro Cope is great Braden Goss mm-hmm. and and whatnot yeah I've had some enjoyable times in a thrash ring over the years as well and it's crazy how some of those people who got written as backyard style wrestlers how it was those people who were like so dedicated that they're the ones that are still running their shows and still putting in as much effort as they still possibly can yeah absolutely so I think that you know, the, the story of wrestling continues to be told and, and whether it's a sequel to the original book or a mm-hmm. new book, 
that that uh, or something that's specific to you know the story of thrash wrestling that allows you to really go in depth on the characters that have that have made that a very heartfelt brand mm-hmm. um, this this it's like the continuing story of pro wrestling that absolutely is. so many stories to tell there truly is a plethora of them and now that we know the why you decided to become a wrestling historian and why you wrote wrestling in the Canadian West. I want to dive a little bit more into your research process here, a little bit more about the Cauliflower Alley Club. But before we get there, we're going to take a little bit of a break so that we can talk about the premiere streaming app and service for combat sports and of course you guys know that i am talking all about fight tv that is f-i-t-e dot t-v and you guys heard me last week how i was telling you all about how fight tv is trying to help those of you who maybe are feeling the punch of the current crisis maybe feeling a little bit of a hurt on the wallet by how fight tv is given a discount on a lot of their previous pay-per-views that they happen to have. Well, to also go ahead and help you out, Fight has also gone and launched the Fight 24-7 channel on both the app and the website. And there is always a match going on in any of those three categories that they carry. That's right, hard-hitting, pro wrestling, MMA, and boxing action on the Fight 24-7 channel. And it's for free in your app store on the Fight TV website right now. Once again, that is F-I-T-E dot T-V for the hardest hitting streaming service you can find today. The Desert Tiger Podcast. So you mentioned that you had a network of different like researchers to pull a lot of information from. Was there any moments where you yourself had to go to different territories and maybe get into different archives or contact different people who maybe had the information but maybe didn't necessarily have it organized I or any of that matter? I, you know, when I started wrestling, I always kept track of everything that I was doing. So I mm-hmm. kept the results for the shows I was on and kept the record of my own career. And, you know, I just kind of thought loosely that other people must do that. And nobody's done that. Nobody you know? does that. And, and so I would, you know, early on when I was doing the research for the book, I had like just a printout of all the results. And I would bring them on the road trips with guys that were more veteran and say, hey, here's here's what I've got. You know, can you help me fill in the gaps? And they would look at it and be like, I have no idea, man. Like we were just so busy living the life. We don't know. And it all blurs together. And now as I'm more experienced, I understand that. that mm-hmm. You know, I, I meet with people and they say, yeah, we had a great match once in Vancouver. And I'm like, I'm not even sure I've met you before. Um, or they'll say, you know what, I really appreciate that advice you gave me one time. And and I'll have to say to them, like, can you remind me what that was? Because I don't remember. And they would say, yeah, you said this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds like something I would say. You know, uh, and sometimes I just nod thoughtfully. Not, not, not on that I don't know, but... Uh, what that led to originally was okay. If I can't just print the results and give them to someone, uh, let's re- let's research their individual career and give it to them because then they'd be able to identify the gaps. Mm-hmm. 
So I started doing that where I'd go to on a road trip with Chi Chi Cruz or something and say, hey, here's your career. And be like, oh, well, in this period in June, I was in the Maritimes or I was in Germany or I was in South mm-hmm. Africa. And so you now got like a lead to go and follow those things, even if it wasn't the core research that I was doing for the book. And so I started doing the individual careers and that actually has become a passion project in itself that now um, I've researched the individual careers of more than 200 wrestlers, not just Canadian wrestlers, Mm -hmm. but some of the top stars in the business. And, and really originally I did it as a, as a sort of a supporting exercise for the Canadian book. But uh, when the book was done, uh, I did, I compiled the career history for Don Leo Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Don Leo was a second generation wrestler out of Utah. He started in the 1950s, had his last match in Vancouver in 1980, uh, was a huge star for this region of the Pacific Northwest. And I did it as a thank you to Don Leo for taking the time out. He invited me over to his home. We had two or three sit downs just so gracious uh so i came back on a following visit and gave him his career and i had like 2800 matches for don leo jonathan all over the world and he's paging through it and he's like wow this name i haven't thought about this person in 40 years and he was just so blown away and touched by the effort uh he said would you mind printing off three more copies of this because i'd like to give a copy to each of my kids Hmm. and i thought well now this is good now i've done something of value to pay back. So I started doing that with all the guys that did the interviews for my book. So I did one for Moose Murawski, did one for Dean Ho. Uh, and and, and um, then I thought, you know what, that was so rewarding. Uh, I was going to the Cauliflower Alley Club the following year and I looked, took a look at who was going to be there. And I said, oh, Ted DiBiase is going to be there. You know, uh, I can't remember who else. Ted DiBiase was kind of the highlight for me that year. So I researched Ted DiBiase's career, but his dad and his mom were also both wrestlers. So I researched their careers and put it all together. So met Ted DiBiase, said, hi, Ted, it's a pleasure to meet you. I'm a big, longtime fan of your work. I've just put this together for you. So it had his career. And then I said, yeah, if you go past this tab, here's your dad's career. If you go past this tab, here's your mom's career. And he started to tear up instantly. And he said, uh, this is amazing. I don't know how you found all of this. His dad had died when, when Ted was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. So he was aware of his career, you know, saw him at Russell as a kid, but had no records of it. And so now here's his whole career. And his mom, he was aware had wrestled, but had no records of it at all. She had just told a few stories from time to time. And now here's a record of, of her career. And off of that, we became friends instantly and and continue to be friends to this day. Um, you know, and so that sort of started, you know, a, a, a new tradition for me that every year I'd go to Cauliflower Alley, I would take three or four more record books hmm. of guys that were going to be there. So now I've got over 200 records. Um, and what I've done is I've printed the record book for them to keep. I print an extra copy of the cover and have them sign it back to me. Mm-hmm. So now I've got this binder of career record books, uh, which is like a one of a kind memorabilia collection with Hulk Hogan, Bret Hart, Steve Austin, uh, Ric Flair, Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson, Barry Windham, Demolition, Paul Orndorff. And it's just like, you know, that that's probably my prized collection 
this year going to Cauliflower Alley. I've been putting together the record books for uh, Brian Blair, uh, Dominic Danucci. Probably a few more that I that I get uh, put together before we get to Vegas. But uh, it just uh, another way of sort of taking that documented history and making sure that the contributions of those men and women in the business don't get lost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how long have you been involved with Cauliflower Alley Club? The first year that I went to Cauliflower Alley, they used to travel around. So it was originally started in the 1960s in Los Angeles, and we just started as uh, an annual lunch. So they would have a luncheon and bring the wrestlers together. And the founder, Mike Mazurki, who was also an actor, uh, had a lot of connections with Hollywood people. So you'd have Hollywood celebrities hanging out with wrestlers. And it became uh, a fraternal organization very early on, a benevolent, or benevolent uh, organization, where because Mike Mazurki was doing so well for himself financially, guys that weren't would come to him and say, hey, I'm you know falling on hard times or... You know, this is what's happened. And in those days, wrestlers couldn't get insurance mm-hmm. for themselves. So, uh, you know, he'd say, hey, so-and-so is, uh, you know, in trouble. They need some money. You know, uh, they need two grand. I'm going to put in, I'm going to put in 500 bucks. How much can I count you in for? Mm-hmm. And would sort of just like informally, you know, pass the hat among the wrestlers. And wrestlers would take care of themselves. You take care of your community. And that club has evolved over the years, and they would travel around, um, take the take the reunion to different cities. So the first year I went was in 1999, uh, when it was held in Newton, Iowa, in in conjunction with the opening of the new Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame and Museum there. Mm-hmm. And so I had a chance to meet directly, you know, Luthez and Vern Gagne and Harley Race, and, uh, the original Destroyer, Red Bastine, you know. And at that time, you know, I was. Uh, you know, like a 20, 20 year old kid, you know, in, in you know, 22 or 23 years old in, in this environment with all of these legends. Uh, it was incredible, you know, and get to sit at the, sit at the table with them and have dinner and hear their road stories. Um, and then they moved the reunion, uh, to Las Vegas and I hadn't been for a few years. Uh, but I got the call that because of my book, Mm-hmm. I was being nominated for the James C. Melby Historian Award. Um, and you can only win an award if you're a member. So I'm like, oh, I better renew my membership. <laughs> so I renewed my membership and went down in, in 2010. And that whole experience was just so surreal. Um, because, you know, I'm up on the podium in a room full of 650 people. And I look out in the front row and at the table right in front of me is Nick Bockwinkle, Ted DiBiase, and Terry Funk. And I just felt like this is so backwards. These are legendary world champions here. And I'm the guy being honored. Mm-hmm. And I looked down at my podium to look at my speech, which I'd probably written and rewritten five times. And it was all a blur. It was all squiggly lines. And so I just kind of spoke from the heart. Mm-hmm. And then you get your award. You go to the, you know, the photo station. They take your photo with the award presenter. And other people can come and take a photo mm-hmm. with you. And sort of celebrate your night uh, but what I remember most about that experience was as I was going back to my table in the banquet room as I was passing Terry Funk he stood up in his chair uh, to shake my hand and congratulate me and so I was like this is wild right so I lean in for the handshake and he came in for the full half hug and in my ear he said I'm proud of you son and I just like start tearing up uh, just like such a 
incredible heartfelt moment mm-hmm. you know and um, I remember when I gave Terry his uh, career record he, he was uh, emceeing the Cauliflower Alley that year and so he got up on stage the next night and he said you know what I've been married to my wife for 26 years everyone applauds right yeah you know mm-hmm. yay he goes but I just got my record book for Vance and when I like uh, subtract all of the days I was on the road wrestling and then all the days I was on the road traveling and couple nights I spent in jail for a bar brawl we've actually only been married for 11 weeks you know and just like huge comedy moment for the for the club but uh, so now a lot of the research that I've done you know whether people have asked me for it directly or have referenced it otherwise has been credited in other books so most of the slam wrestling books I've got an acknowledgement a lot of Bertrand Hebert and Pat Laprade's books on Quebec got an acknowledgement uh, Angelo Mosca uh, had a book written and they actually published the career record that I had researched in the book huh. uh, in the back it wasn't complete like if they had told me they were doing it I probably mm. would have sent them a more updated one so that's always really neat you know when I get a book in the mail or Stephen Verrier out of Washington State he did a book uh, first of all like on the Pacific Northwest that covered BC uh, Washington and Oregon mm-hmm. they referenced a lot of my work and then he did a book on Gene Kaniski um, so it's it's cool to see that uh, you know my work is referenced and then I'm sort of acknowledged as a historian right now uh, Stephen is working on a book about George Gordienko hmm. who is probably one of the, the greatest Canadian wrestler uh, to never be world champion uh, so that'll be coming out hopefully sometime soon uh, so there is a lot of stuff out there mm-hmm. uh, and, and a lot of work and the Cauliflower Alley organization. I now uh, publish the newsletter uh, for that for the club, and, and I'm an active promoter, and really encourage young wrestlers that have an appreciation for the business or really think that this could be their career uh, to get there. Mm-hmm. Because you've got representatives from all the major companies that are there. You've got a lot of wrestlers of past and present that can be a help to you in terms of networking and connections. Uh, and it's just really an opportunity to immerse yourself in the culture of professional wrestling for a couple of days. And one thing that makes it this event different than going to WrestleMania at a fan fest, for example, mm-hmm. when you go to fan fest, you're just in line with the other fans, right? You're not actually getting you know uh, behind the curtain kind of access to any of those people. Mm-hmm. You've got your five seconds to get your autograph and your photo op, and off you go. At the Cauliflower Alley Club, when you show up, you know, and, and I encourage you to come this year. Oh, try to. <laughs> when you when you show up and go to the registration table and get your name badge, you are one of the boys. Mm-hmm. You're in the business, and and we have no distinction there. If you're a fan, if you're a ring announcer, if you're just the guy that takes the jackets to the back, if you're a promoter, referee, mm-hmm. um, you know, ring announcer or a wrestler. If you're there, you're part of the brotherhood and sisterhood of wrestling. And so you might be on your way to breakfast one morning and you fall into step. You know, and this happened with us. We were on our way to breakfast. It was Kevin Jeffries and myself. And we fell into step with uh, Jerry Briscoe. Hmm. And he said, hey, Jerry, you going for breakfast? Yeah. Are you alone? You want to you dine with us? And he came and joined us at the table. And we didn't talk wrestling at all. He wanted to talk about baseball. Hmm. Uh, and actually, we that year we had kind of a running rib that if you left your cell phone unattended on the table, mm-hmm. that meant that anyone else could pick it up and take photos with it. Uh, 
And so uh, we were we were dining with Kenny Dahl, who was a wrestler out of Newfoundland, a guy that I admire so greatly. Um, his career got cut short because of a back injury, uh, but now he's playing baseball in the Caribbean. So I don't know, he's probably probably doing better than us. But uh, Kenny Dahl is a huge Boston Red Sox fan, mm-hmm. and uh, Jerry Briscoe was a huge Jacksonville fan. So uh, when Kenny Dahl got up to go to breakfast, he left his phone on the table. Well, Jerry Briscoe like took a picture, you know, like of himself, like pointing to his Jacksonville jersey and thumbs down to Boston, and just left it on his phone. And you know, Dahl didn't see it, I don't think, until the next day. But you know, it's just this memory of, you know, yeah, I was having breakfast with Jerry Briscoe. Mm-hmm. He buried my baseball team. <laughs> um, so many, so many memories of just you know, you're you're in the moment or. You know, we're in the lounge after the formal program is done and just everybody's there. So you're sitting there drinking beer with Pat Patterson and he's telling stories or me and Gene Okerlund and, you know, or uh, another guy that was awesome was uh, uh, Oliver Humperdinck, who was a manager, you know, in the territories and mm-hmm. the WWE uh, and just total like down to earth guys. And, you know, they're telling stories about, you know, the old territory days or ribs that they pulled on guys um, and just uh, so complimentary and just, res- you know, returning the respect of, hey, here's a young guy in the business who's come here because they respect the business and want to learn, you know, the traditions and, and the lessons that they might not get otherwise. Uh, so I, I love it. And I, I don't get down every year because of my schedule, but I try to get down every other year. Are you going down this year? And I will be there this year, All yeah. All right, fantastic. So, Are you taking part in any... Uh conferences or like being a part of like the newsletter do they have you taking part of the actual conference in any official capacity yeah so there's uh one of the things that's a a great advantage so there's two uh, nights of awards so they you know recognize different you know wrestlers of the past and present so they've got uh just the, the lineup of people that are getting awards this year are getting honors from cauliflower alley club uh rob van dam ray mysterio jr uh alundra blaze the Road Warriors, um, Greg Oliver uh, is getting the James Melby Historian Award this year. Uh, men's Wrestling Award is going to Ricky Santana. Um, women's Wrestling Award is going to Jazz, uh, former WWE Women's Champion. So, fantastic lineup. And then they've also got uh, awards recognizing the current generation. So, they've got the, the Rising Star Award. Okay. This year is the first year they're acknowledging men and women oh. uh, because there's so much talent. Mm-hmm. And so Brian Pillman Jr. is going to be there for the Rising Star Men's Award. Okay. And Canadian Madison Miles is oh. getting the Women's Award for oh. Rising Star this year. Um, and then they also have a seminar series. Uh, and the seminars are fantastic because it's really like a gloves-off, uh, uncensored you know, conversation and whether it's topical and they're talking about somebody's talking about the art of cutting a promo or, you know, the uh, art of refereeing or whatever, you know, it could be, um, this year they've got a panel on the history of the British Columbia wrestling territory. Uh, and that's going to be a pretty, you know, packed stage. So we've got Bobby Bass from the seventies, Fidel Sierra, who wrestled as Fidel Cortez here in the early eighties. Uh, Michelle Starr for the 90s, uh, Adam Ryder, Raven Lake, uh, Greg Lake, uh, Stuart Kemp are all there. I'm moderating that one. I think it's going to be like a hard job just keeping everybody 
on task. Uh, there's also going to be a session this year on uh, the Ice Road Tours. Oh, uh, Tony Canelo. Tony Candelo tour and, and some of the other tours that have taken place. Uh, so I would get to participate on that one and kind of enlighten people, particularly in the southern U.S. who were like, what? You drive on the ice? What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, Tracy Smothers, uh, who's a legendary wrestler from the southern states, he's got a uh, an hour and a half on stage just by himself talking about his life and career. Um, and there's other seminars as well. So there's, there's stuff to do to, to engage. You know, if you're a Curbridge player, you could be having be part of the cribbage tournament with all of these legendary wrestlers um, you know there's a bowling tournament that usually happens every year and then one of the events that's just kind of happened spontaneously and it happened uh, they have two nights of live wrestling as well so Sunday night there's a live show Monday night there's a live show and then Tuesday and Wednesday night are the awards dinners um, but uh, the last year after the Monday night wrestling match you got all these guys hyped up on adrenaline end up at the Red Zone Lounge in the Gold Coast uh, Hotel and Casino and everyone's kind of uh, hyped up and somebody started to do a Jackie Fargo strut <laughs> and then that was subject to artistic interpretation so now it became a strut off Oh my! and now this is an annual event now it's a tag team strut off that occurs you know at 1am with all these adrenaline charged wrestlers of past and present and uh, I think actually Madison Miles and Alex Wicker uh, took home the honors last year. They oh. won the strut off. Hmm. So, so who like how do you judge a strut off? Yeah, I think it's just by reaction of the crowd. Okay, you know, that's that's a good way to in the purest things. in the purest form. You know, it's a bunch of a bunch of wrestlers sitting around after the matches, just as we do, and uh, having some fun. That's awesome. It sounds like it's a pretty good time all around. That you have a lot of different activities and events and even just like different people from different timelines people like madison who currently is has like toured across canada and is doing a lot of work in england and then even like you said a lot of the legends that you listed earlier that they seem to be like recognizing and acknowledging it seems yeah. like it seems to be like a good array of different timelines and people from like different styles and everything so absolutely so it's just yeah it's just one of the rarest type of events that there, there is out there like there's a lot of conventions and fan fests that happen throughout the year this really is the only event for the wrestling community huh. and so you'll have uh, you know people from the WWE management team will be there uh, supporting their people that are being honored uh, but you also have impact wrestling guys from the office show up and uh, AEW is new, so I mean, and they they tape on Wednesdays, so it mm -hmm. might they might not be there this year. Uh, but I'm sure, they'll have somebody there. You could have somebody that's got a night off and is there, mm -hmm. and just just such a I mean, for as a as somebody in the business, just to be immersed in that, and you know, you catch up with people that you haven't seen in years, and you also meet like some pretty like diehard fans who you know uh, have you know know your career better than you do yourself mm -hmm. you know and are excited uh, there's there's one guy there Brian Westcott who's really like the heart of the club yeah. and he'll show up and uh, the first year I went he had a, a previous book that I'd done even before wrestling in the Canadian West mm -hmm. it was kind of almost an experiment self-published when I look at it now I'm very embarrassed uh, but I did it at 23 years old okay. um, is sort of the precursor to wrestling the Canadian West, and it was just Sherlock's binding printed at Staples. 
you know, with very rudimentary uh, layout skills that I had in Microsoft Word. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it might have even been not even Word. It was like Word Perfect. <laughs> uh, you know, black and white, grainy photos, the whole thing, a lot of, a lot of typos. Um, but he had uh, a copy of this book that at that time was 10 years old, still in pristine you know, condition, wow. without a crease that he had brought with him from Idaho to Vegas to get signed. Hmm. Um and yeah, just, you know, those types of fans that, you know, are now following your career and, you know, reach out to you like, hey, I met you in Vegas and good luck on your show tonight or happy birthday or whatever. So just like really like reinforces that, you know, as much as we feel that wrestling is divided across North America, we really are one big family, mm-hmm. you know, Definitely. within professional wrestling, within this niche, mm-hmm. this culture of pro wrestling. As divided as many of us are by highways and kilometers and locker rooms at the end of the day we're all have a love of the same yeah, industry absolutely and for podcast guys it's mm-hmm. a great opportunity to just corner someone and say hey do you have 20 minutes for me we can go to this interview <laughs> it definitely sounds like it would be full of incredible opportunities and myself any aspiring wrestlers and any wrestling fans really should definitely think about checking out the Cauliflower Alley Club. Of course, they have rescheduled to September of 2020, and you can find out more information about that on their website. And you can also go ahead and pick up a membership to the club there as well. All right, we're going to be jumping into some details about some of the more interesting characters in the history of the western canadian wrestling scene right away here but first off we have to take another moment to shout out one of our wonderful sponsors here on the show and of course that is audible audible is giving you the ambush of desert tiger one free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership of the Audible service. And let me tell you, they have the largest collection of Audible audio programs available on the internet today. And that includes a plethora of wrestling novels, including Jim Ross's upcoming book that I'm definitely going to be checking out when it drops. That, of course, is known as Under the Black Hat. And if you if you're just impatient and just can't wait to check it out, maybe you also want to go and head and catch yourself up with Jim Ross's first book, Slobber Knocker. That's actually what I'm listening to right now. I'm on chapter nine and it is a fantastic listen. It's actually narrated by good old JR himself. So if you're a wrestling fan, that's a voice that's definitely going to ease you in as you go through this. And of course, how do you get this free audiobook with this 30-day Audible trial? Well, let me tell you, that's by going to audibletrial.com slash Desert Tiger. Once again, that is A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash Desert Tiger. All right, you guys, let's jump back into it with Vance Nevada. The Desert Tiger Podcast. 
All right, so I wanted to dive a little bit into some of the characters and some of the scenarios that really like struck me from reading the book, but sure. just from time, like maybe let's just jump into some of the people that we've already spoken about already. So you happen to me- mention Don Leo. Yeah. Is that the same Don Leo that happens to have a win over a bear? Yeah, you know Don Leo. Uh, you know he he was considered to be a giant in his day. He was mm. six seven, three hundred and twenty pounds. My goodness! Uh, so in the sixties and seventies, before Andre the Giant came along, Don Leo was the Mormon giant. You know that was his name, and he was considered to be you know this incredible main event talent because even at six seven and three hundred twenty pounds, he could get up and throw a drop kick. Hmm. Uh, you know, when he was agile as, as hell and strong. Mm-hmm. And so in New Westminster at the Queen's Arena, uh, Don Leo Jonathan was booked to wrestle a bear. And wow. this was an attraction in mm-hmm. those days, right? They would have this muzzled bear that they would you know bring around. And typically it was kind of a, a gimmick match, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there was a lot of ribs that happened because of the bear, right? So, uh, you know, I've heard stories about uh, you know, somebody uh, was going to wrestle the bear. They were already nervous about it. And uh, the other boys came up behind him just as he was going through the curtain and had a, a handful of honey and smacked him on the ass on his way through the curtain and said, good luck out there tonight. Well, this bear was just going for that honey the whole match. <laughs> you know, so he's just like chasing this guy's ass. Uh, but, you know, they, you know they, the bears were pretty playful and, and you could sort of like do spots like they would give you a snap bear and mm-hmm. things like that you'd get behind them in position and they had a few moves that they could do but typically you know you knew that you were going to be doing the job to the bear mm-hmm. you know there, there's just no way and Don Leo told me this story and he said like yeah, I really had a greater appreciation uh, for the bear he was wrestling terrible Ted mm-hmm. uh, who was the, the prized uh, star attraction for Dave McKigney, who, who wrestled as the Canadian wild man. Mm. In wrestling circles, he was known as the Bear Man. He was from Ontario. And he traveled with the bear, and his promotion was called Big Bear Promotions. Uh, so Terrible Ted came to uh, Queen's Arena, and Don Leo, uh, and this just speaks to the power of him, uh, pinned the bear to the mat. Wow, oh, for a full three seconds. For the full three seconds. My goodness. And he's the only one in history that I've seen documented anywhere that has done that. Um, but when I talked to him about it, you know, he wasn't very grandiose. Mm-hmm. He was very humble. And he said, like, you really could appreciate the power of this animal. But also, you know, with bears, like, as you're trying to do something with them or pin them down, you can feel them rolling within their own hide. Huh. Right? So you're trying to, you know, with a guy, you pin his shoulders down. You can feel those shoulders aren't going anywhere. But with the bear, you're pinning him down, maybe holding him down by the fur or whatever. You can feel his shoulders rolling around inside his hide. And he said, after that happened, like, the bear had no interest to spend any time with him at all. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, just one of those pieces of Canadian lore that's just, uh, wow. you know, now with animal rights and all these things, you'll mm-hmm. never see a bear in a wrestling match again. Absolutely. But uh, in that era, I mean, that sure would have been something to see. Absolutely. All right. So you also happen to mention Tony Candelo, someone who you happen to have toured with. Yeah. Um, do you happen to have any interesting uh, death tour stories? You know, Tony uh, is a guy. Uh, he, he was, I first met Tony in 1994. 
and try to get booked with him. At that time, I was under 200 pounds, and he said, uh, no, I won't book you. You're too small. And it took me five years to get booked with Tony Candelo. Mm -hmm. uh, and then even then, I got booked on the tour as a referee. I only got to wrestle because halfway through the tour, uh, guys had left, and they were short a guy. And mm -hmm. so they put me in, and he goes, ah, you're actually a pretty good little wrestler. And then I was booked on everything for him for the next two or three years. Hmm. Um, Tony is really a throwback to the Carney days of wrestling, um, and I think that you know in the in the seventies and eighties and even early nineties, in the nineties his success was really a true could really be attributed to Don Callis. Mm -hmm. So Don Callis was a career driven guy. Of course, he went on to success with the WWF and then ECW and then TNA and. Now he's a vice president with Impact. Yeah, but uh, Don was you know the total package. He had a good look. He could talk. Uh, so he was a credible main eventer. So they could bring guys in like Jumpin' Jim Brunzel or Rick Martel or whatever to work with Don Callis. Um, and it was because of the connection with Rick Martel that Don eventually got his tryout and then spot with the WWF. Huh. They were supposed to go as a tag team, and then just as the contract got signed. Rick Martel sort of used that as leverage to get a deal with WCW oh, and get wow. a bigger contract. So Don got there, and then they had nothing Not for him anymore. to do. So he was then the manager of the, the Truth Commission, and then the Oddities, and then um, and then he was moved, you know left there after his, he was released and went to ECW, hmm. uh, and has had continued success. But Don, in that ascent of his career in the mid '90s, was in touch with the business. You know, he had toured South Africa. He had toured Germany. I think he'd been to Japan. Uh, so he was connected with the Chris Jerichos and Lance Storms and uh, Dr. Luther and Rick, Rick Titan and all these guys uh, who were making a name for themselves at the same time. So he would bring them into Winnipeg. Uh, they would do their thing. Um, and uh, because of Don, it was like a new lease on life for, for Tony. Hmm. But Tony himself... Uh, his success is almost uh, he's successful despite himself mm. um, he's a character you know and, and if I just knew him as a promoter and never did business with him I would probably still love him uh, <laughs> I, I don't because now you know he's, he's in his 70s and he's lost touch with reality uh, lost touch with the business you know you consider that at one time you know, he's booking shows with Chris Jericho, Lance Storm, Edge, Christian, Rhino, Jerry Lynn, uh, you know, and that's the tier that he's set. And mm -hmm. now it's like, well, let's just find the greenest guys who will work for the cheapest and put the show out so that I can make the most profit. Uh, but it's not the same. And then he's still running on the, well, these are the people that I produced in the 90s. The Absolutely. So, mm -hmm. you know, he just did his, his Northern tour uh, and there was a poster uh, where he actually was advertising it, the clown, and had a picture of Tim Curry. What? As it on the poster, and it said Hollywood stars. Well, whoever you bring in this it gimmick to the uh -huh. town, first of all, people know that that's like from the eighties. Mm -hmm. But as soon as that guy shows up in front of a crowd, they're gonna be like. This is not. It's not the Bill Skarsgård, and it's definitely not Tim Curry. <laughs> you know, this is not the guy from the movie, and it was a, it was the same thing in the late '90s when he would, had a replica Doink suit made and had different guys wrestling as Doink. Like, the costume wasn't even the same. 
And if you got a guy that really sort of cared and put in the effort, then the face paint would be the same. Yeah. But a lot of guys didn't, and it would be like cheesy face paint, and you know he'd show up and and sell autograph signings at restaurants with Doink, and you'd have this guy show up in a, in a goofy singlet that hadn't been washed in three nights, mm-hmm. and you know crappy face paint, and in a family restaurant somewhere like a Perkins that sponsored, and be like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, this isn't the guy from the WWF. Hmm. Um, so. Uh, you know, I've worked with him in, in recent years uh, as a ring announcer and helped him with the front man on some of his shows, but um, I've certainly lost a lot of respect for him. But uh, in terms of the ice roads, uh, you know, people really can't fathom, especially in the lower mainland of BC where we never really get that cold. Mm-hmm. I mean, here in the Okanagan a little bit where, you know, it's, it's cold enough where people are out there ice fishing. Uh, not necessarily thick enough from the drive vehicles out on. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, in northern Manitoba, uh, there's conditions usually for about three to four weeks a year in late January, early February, where the ice gets thick enough. Uh, and these communities otherwise are fly-in communities. They're so remote in northern Manitoba that fly in all their supplies. And as a result, it's an expensive uh, environment to live in where, you know, a, a, a four liter jug of milk might be 10 bucks, 20 bucks. Uh, mind you, the other, the other, the other uh, confections, you know, mm-hmm. like, like Pepsi is still the same price that it is in Southern Manitoba. Yeah. So this is why you have a lot of malnutrition in the area because the mm-hmm. stuff they can afford is the junk food and the perishable items like the fresh fruit and the milk and things like that are at a premium. Um, but you, you know, one of the, uh, ironies of the tour though, is you think about the ice roads as being the dangerous part. Like now here you are on an open lake, uh, and as you're driving, you can hear like crackling under the wheels mm-hmm. and you might be driving for 10 miles across this lake. And so a lot of guys have cracked on that tour because Tony will, will play games with them and you know, the windows roll down he'd be like, Oh, you hear that cracking? I don't think that's good. Like mm-hmm. we're going to go. Uh, so guys like Scott Norton in particular, you know, they didn't fare well on that tour, like mentally, mm-hmm. uh, Rhino. I mean, there's been a story on the WWE network where uh. edge, edge and Christian have said Rhino was crying mm-hmm. and Rhino says, I definitely wasn't crying, <laughs> but they say, yeah, you were, uh, you know, things like that where you go through the ice. Um, but actually the most treacherous part of the trip is actually the roads between the ice roads. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's like basically just bulldozed muskeg uh, through the wilderness so it's bumpy and and rough and then when you finally get to the ice road and have like a smooth drive for 10 minutes uh, you actually welcome that Mm -hmm. Um, but you know particularly when American guys come up or BC guys that have never seen weather like that you know minus 40 degrees Celsius plus Mm -hmm. the wind chill and then you're out on a frozen lake and you look like way off in the horizon and you can see a tree line the reality is uh, if that van went through the ice, uh-huh. even if you bailed out and are standing on the ice, by the time you would get to a shore, you would have died, but died of exposure anyway. Mm-hmm. So you, you're done. Um, but uh, very, very rough tours. And if you get to get to a town, the reason the, the, the tour has a couple of different names, and one of them is is the Death Tour. And the reason that they call it the Death Tour is uh, it's the custom of uh, of the culture. That if somebody dies in the community, the whole town shuts down for a week in mourning. Mm-hmm. So the store shuts down, the school shuts down. So you might drive 23 hours to get to the town, 
And then they say, oh, we had a death this morning. Oh, dang. Wrestling's canceled tonight. Uh, and so there you are. Like, you're not on a per-week guarantee. You're on a per-night. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to perform to get paid. So now you're out of night's pay. Uh, meanwhile, you're still eating the food, you know, that you've hauled in there yourself because you're bringing it in. It's too expensive to buy from the northern store up there. Uh, and you've got a night off. And so some, you know, if you get a bad winter, there could be as many as six deaths. And wow. so you're booked on a two-week tour and you had six nights off. You know, it, it's rough. Four to eight days. Yeah. Maybe most. Yeah. So you, times. so you really hope that you hustle at, you know, the merchandise table and sell your eight by tens, you know, for a chance to make money uh, coming out. Um, the worst is, you know, one, one tour we were on, um, we were at Connecting Towns. And so there was like a, a short ice road. It was only going to be about a three hour drive from one town to the next. Uh, but somebody had been out there with, uh, you know, their snowmobile or something, they were messing around. They went to where the ice was thin. Now the ice was compromised. Mm-hmm. They, they had gone through. So that ice road was closed. So instead of the three-hour drive, we now had to go around the lake the long way and come into the town from the other way. So it was a 23-hour drive. Hmm. So we did our show that night. We wrestled. Everybody, you know, hauls ass, gets the ring back in the, in the van, and, you know, quick bite to eat, but then you're back on the road. Drive overnight all night long just to get to the next town in time to set the ring up and start the show an hour late. And you know, you have a few few shows like that where over the course of that two weeks, you'll drive 1,100 kilometers Wow! Uh, in wilderness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you come out of that, you know, and you get back to Winnipeg, you're just so grateful to see civilization and see, you know, stores and restaurants that you recognize, you know, and, and um, there's no hotels in these communities. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're wrestling, uh, you're bringing your own sleeping bag with you. If you're lucky and you get there fast enough when you tear down the ring, you might get one of the mats off the ring to sleep on. Uh, in later years when I was on the tour, guys were thinking ahead and bringing air mattresses, you know, and, and plug in air pumps. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of had a level of comfort. But, you know, you wrestle in a school gymnasium, you cook your dinner in the home ec room, you might get access to AV and you can watch some videos or something, maybe hook up a video camera if somebody taped the show and mm-hmm. watch it back. But uh, you're sleeping right on the gymnasium floor, you know, where you've just performed. It's very, very rough. And, and I've seen a lot of guys by the end of it just crack. More, more In more recent years, Johnny Obsession was a guy from the West Coast. He did that tour. Uh, he didn't really survive. And when he got back, like he took time off from wrestling. Hmm. completely uh, Adam Fedick is a guy from Kelowna who actually started he was Colin Cutler's first tag team partner okay he did that tour when he finished that tour he quit wrestling oh wow um, yeah he was just done it just mentally breaks you down hmm. so with a good crew and where everybody gets along and, and that's great it's a rough tour with a bad crew where there's conflict and, and fighting among the crew uh, it's brutal Wow. Brutal tour. Wow. All right. So before I let you go, I just have one last question. Sure. Do you have any tips for anyone who might happen to be going on a tour, whether it happens to be for CWE or whatever the promotion happens to be as someone who has toured for numerous promotions, for someone who maybe necessarily isn't, hasn't had the opportunity to hit the road yet, what are some tips and tricks that you might be able to give 
those individuals. I think the first the first uh, important uh, thing about touring is uh, first of all, uh, it's not how much you make; it's how much you save. You're not going to get rich on independent wrestling. So, uh, if you know that the promoter is typically a fifty dollar a night guy, uh, you got to think about how you're going to budget for that because you don't want to come home in the hole. Mm-hmm. So you might be packing your cans of tuna and your your itchy band noodles, uh, you know, with you, uh, you know, where you're living off your protein shakes, uh, instead of spending twenty bucks at a restaurant for a meal, you know, or you know, if you get to a town or you're on a tour for three days or you know or longer, uh, you know, three meals a day in a restaurant, uh, your money is gone before you've been paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, always think about merchandising. Uh, whether you're, you're a villain or you're a hero, um, have your merchandise, be out there at the table flogging it uh, because sometimes your merchandise is the make or break of, uh, of you being able to, to make money uh, or lose money. Um, make sure that you, know, you uh, negotiate your deal. If the promoter says, uh, we want to pay you this, make sure that you're getting what you need. Um, and and be willing to compromise so if they say you know our budget is 50 bucks and you say listen i really need 100 bucks to make this worthwhile just to break even uh not even including you know consideration of lost wages that from Mm -hmm. not working your real job um know what your number is and be happy with that number and if you negotiate 250 bucks and you figure out how you're going to make that work you know with your merchandise sales or other ways you're going to save money uh you know, you're gonna. You know, if you're sharing a hotel room now, you're putting five guys in a hotel room and splitting that five ways instead of everybody having their own room. Uh, these are all sacrifices that are age old in wrestling. Uh, they call it healing a room. So one guy will go and check in. Yep, just me, and then pile everybody else in, and you're you know flipping the coin to get, see who gets the bed and who gets the floor. And if you're gonna take the mattress off and somebody gets the box spring or whatever your deal is, you know, always look at ways to save money. Uh, I think the last thing I could say about touring is uh, always remember that the ego and the superstar status is for the people, not for the locker room. So if you've been brought in as the headliner, uh, it's because the promoter thinks that the customers that are buying the tickets believe you're a headliner. Chances are the guys in the back know that you're just a guy like they are. Uh, And so if you pull your superstar bullshit in the locker room, you can expect that you're going to have a very rough tour. And you might find, oh, you're going to wrestle the next night and you can't find your wrestling boot. <laughs> you know, somebody, your, your boot is missing or you, or you come back and, you're, and your suitcase has been super glued shut. Or, or uh, you're looking for your shoes after your match and somebody has uh, nailed them into the ceiling of the locker room. The superstar attitudes don't fly in wrestling. And particularly as you get to higher levels in the industry, the, the hazing that takes place because of that behavior... Is not uh, is not for the faint of heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alice Cooper, you know, says the same thing of his band about egos on the road. He says, when we're on stage, people have paid to see rock and roll superstars, rock and roll gods. Like, get your ego out there, be a superstar on stage. Like, give them all of that. Mm-hmm. But then, when the show lights go down and we go to the back, we're just dudes. Uh, and so, you always want to be humble, uh, humble and hungry. And, uh, yeah, that is probably the, the best advice I could give to anybody that's looking to be a touring professional wrestler and be successful. 
All right, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for both of the conversations we had here today. Awesome. All right. My pleasure. And a truly big, roaring Desert Tiger podcast. Thank you to Vance Nevada, a champion among men, a heavyweight champion among men for joining us once again here on the Desert Tiger podcast. I also want to go ahead and thank you guys, The Ambush, for checking out this episode of the DTP. If you're new with the podcast, maybe you want to go ahead and hit the subscribe button on whatever service you're listening on. Maybe you want to go ahead and review the show on iTunes. I mean, I only say that because iTunes is the one that happens to offer a star rating system for reviews. So, I mean, a five-star rating would be fantastic over on there. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode enough, maybe you want to go ahead and share it. And if you do, I would be ecstatic if you went ahead and tagged me, the Colton G, the Desert Tiger Podcast, or Vance Nevada when you do, so that we can go ahead and show you a little bit of love when you do so. Next week on the show, we're going to be returning to the musical realms. I can't exactly diverge who our guest is going to be, because they have a... They have a album that they plan on announcing that day, and as of right now, it is a surprise. So we can't tell you anything as of that right now. I just want you to know that it's going to be another amazing week here at the Desert Tiger Podcast, and I can't wait to talk to you then. And until then, you guys, you already know what's up. I'm going to tell you that it is time to go out and find your passion, your dream, or as I like to call it, your mountain, so that you can begin to climb it. And of course, as you climb, there's going to be things that get in your way. You're going to get tired. There's going to be rocks that fall out from underneath your feet. And that that is adversity, and right now we're going through a lot of adversity, but that's okay because adversity is what makes us stronger, and we're going to be some mighty strong tigers after all of this is done. So until next week, stay happy, stay healthy, wash your hands, and bye bye